it's old timey crimey. I'm Christy, and I am here this week with special guest Barb. Howdy. <laughs> perfect. Absolutely perfect. Barb is filling in for Amber, who is off enjoying some much needed time off and vacation. We're jealous. <laughs> A little bit. A little bit, but we're going to have fun here. And to introduce you to Barb, she is a librarian. I am. She's my librarian friend. (laughs) And she brought lots of books that are stacked up. It looks very library-ish in here. (laughs) Yes, I think I have probably saved some of these books from certain death. I know one of them had not been checked out since 2013. Wow. So uh, we we are bringing some books back from the brink here. Absolutely. I am behind that cause 100%. Before we get started, don't forget about the Patreon. Patreon.com slash old timey crimey. We have every week our old tiny crimey bonus episode where one of us tells the other a story that they haven't heard before. I told Barb about the Red Ghost. For this week. It was very on brand, and it worked great for our session today, I think. Yeah, I really think. The shows this week are going to partner very well, this full episode and the tiny. And so, yeah, that that was a lot of fun. So we have those every week, and then we also have the extra, extra bonus episode. That's a a longer episode where we get together and we each talk about a case that's attached to a certain theme. And our patrons are going to hear from Barb again at the end of the month when she is going to join us for the Extra Extra, along with another special guest, Chris Garcia. Oh, glad to meet Chris. (laughs) Yes, so it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do a geographical theme, but I'm not going to tell you why. Can't wait for that. I need to start doing my research. I just remembered. So yes, that is five bucks a month. You can enjoy that, and you also get a shout-out at the end of the show where I will sing your name, or if you request me to not sing your name, I will not sing your name. So far, nobody has said don't sing my name. I think people are okay with it, but maybe people hate it. I don't know. I I kind of don't care unless they're patrons. (laughs) Can you belch their name? Oh, I've never been good at that. I have never been good at that. No. Um, I can try. I could, could, like suck down a whole bunch of, of beer or soda or something, and, and I could attempt it, but I don't think it would work well. The only time I was good at that was when my gallbladder was messed up, and then I was just burping all the time, <laughs> all the time. I was, like, walking through a toy store Christmas shopping for my niece and nephew, and I'm on the phone with my sister asking what they might want, and I'm just burping left and right, and she's like, are you in public burping? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I can't not burp, and I can't not go into public, so I have to go into public and burp. <laughs> this is just what I do now. <laughs> this sounds like a throwback to my undiagnosed esophageal reflex disease. There so you go. Yeah. I know that life. You know that life. So this week, we are going to the wild, wild west. Yeehaw! And we are going to talk about Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. <laughs> Barb's making pew, pew, pew guns. Barb actually picked this. Cheers. So we're, it's thanks to her that we're traveling into the just completely ungoverned territory. <laughs> you know, I feel, I feel like when, when you're thinking about old-timey crimey, um, I, I was trying to think of something that was the timiest and the crimiest, mm-hmm. and this is naturally where my brain took us. And it's a good place. It's a good place. I'm going to actually start us off with a quote from the San Francisco Call in 1898. Butch Cassidy is a bad man. 
He is the worst man in four states. These states are Utah, Colorado, Idaho, and Wyoming. And when the four governors met in secret conclave on Monday, it was for the purpose of deciding upon a plan of campaign against the most notorious outlaw the West has ever had to cope with. The achievements of Jesse James and his followers pale into tawdry insignificance before those of Butch Cassidy and his 500. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. I feel like that might be a bit of a tall tale. Yes. I also like the fact that it's uh, a secret conclave, but the media knows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, yeah, let's talk about the Wild West first. Let's really get established in the time period and the place that we're going to be in. So it really got moving in the mid-1800s, especially after the Civil War, as pioneers started going westward beyond the Mississippi, and they had any number of reasons to do this. There were gold and silver rushes that started in the late 1840s and went on until the end of the century. There, maybe they were just trying to find better jobs, improve their circumstances, or maybe they were trying to get away from trouble. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody was a little naughty. And the West was pretty open and pretty wild. So you could outrun lawmen maybe a little bit more easily than you could in the you know well-established populated cities in the East and South and such that had more established law enforcement. From what I understand, one of my sources points out that Uh, They were advertising in Europe that the land in the West was the most fertile, the most easy to soil, so much land for days, and none of it owned by anybody. Mm -hmm. So they made it really sound wonderful and accessible, and they tended to forget things like, you know, it was like 100 degrees in the summer and 20 degrees at night in the winter. They just kind of glossed over some of that. Yeah, there was this intentional attempt to get people out there in order to settle it. And there were some falsehoods told in that attempt. Yeah, like <laughs> that it wasn't already settled by indigenous tribes that had been there for hundreds of years, if not thousands. Exactly. Come to this unsettled land that is actually settled by a whole entire group of people. Don't worry about them. Yeah, no. So, some people whether they went to the West in search of something or whether they were born there and decided to kick up some dust, ended up becoming well-known or even famous to the extent that they would become folk heroes. Whether they were good or bad, they became the faces of the Wild West, and many of them spent some time on both sides of the law. Wild Bill Hickok, Jesse James, Calamity Jane, Billy the Kid, Doc Holliday, and Butch Cassidy being some that are still a big part of our perception of the Wild West today. When you think Wild West and you think cowboys and outlaws, the railroads started being constructed and that helped with settlement. The Homestead Act was passed in 1862, was signed by Abraham Lincoln, and that gave any settler, man or woman who was 21 or older, or anyone who was head of the household, The ability to go out west, get a hundred and sixty acres of land for dirt cheap. Uh, um, The pun is in my notes, but was still unintended. (laughs) And you would pay $18 in fees. That's $500 today. And you committed to living there for five years. You also had to build a house on the land, improve the land, and farm it. If you wanted to speed the process along a little bit, become a landowner more quickly, you could just fork over a buck twenty-five an acre 
which for a 160-acre plot works out to $200 or $5,600 today. That was kind of a steal, but the thing was, again, there were already people there. Yeah. So people come and they settle on land that the indigenous Americans were already present on, so that ended up in them being pushed out of their territories. And like we said, a lot of the land was kind of total crap. Total crap. <laughs> yes. Now, there, there's an interesting thing that was happening in the West, too. Um, some of the more Spanish-based states, and I, I apologize, I am a terrible guess for not remembering which states exactly, but some states had a certain law that when a woman married, she no longer had the legal ability to own property. That became all her husband. I think that was every state at this period of time. <laughs> there, there were some, though, um, that women retained that right. Oh. So it was more appealing to a woman to live in certain states that, again, were from the Spanish side of things that later became part of the United States, where they would want to live in those areas because if something happened and they had to kick the man out, they got to keep the house you know, they weren't suddenly the ones destitute and looking for a new man because they had no property or savings of their own. So that was an appeal for, for some women and why they chose to move out west is because they got to, you know, maintain a sense of their own agency. Yeah. How dare they? And actually be somewhat independent. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. I like that. That would that would be a big draw. I can see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just have this wonderfully romantic vision of pioneer woman striding out to her homestead and I don't need any man. (laughs) I can stand on my own two feet. Or, you know, if you cause some trouble, I'll kick you out. And guess what? I can keep this property, you bastard. So, (laughs) so yeah, but the thing is, is that this land, a lot of it wasn't great. This whole idea of stay five years and you'll own the land didn't work out for a lot of people because the land was so bad that they ended up bolting before the five years was up. And then there's also capitalism. Capitalism! Yay. So corporations got in on this and started using supposed settlers as kind of proxy buyers of land that was really resource rich with different, you know, like minerals and such. And so that also, you know, the good land is getting bought up by the corporations who have the resources to find the good land. And then your average Joe gets stuck on some land that he can't manage to farm because it's crap and doesn't have any sort of resources and ends up leaving it after a year or two. In the 1880s, kind of the time period we'll be talking about where Butch Cassidy started doing his thing. Some small ranchers tended to be losing business to the big outfits because, again, yay capitalism. And there were also more cities being built where it had once just been kind of a loose collection of small towns. Travel, infrastructure, communication, all these things were getting better as telegraphs had become ubiquitous. The Pony Express becomes a thing of the past. Trains getting more accessible. And the it's just automatic. The more development and innovation we have, the less wild we become. And also the easier it is to catch an outlaw. And so Butch Cassidy wasn't really a big fan of these big corporations. Any more on the Wild West before we move on to Butch? Well, I do have a couple fun facts. Well, fun for a librarian at least. (laughs) So one of the things that really was shaking up this time 
was the idea of the, this connectivity that you were talking about with our good friends at the Transcontinental Railroad, which was founded around 1862 was when they actually linked in together. That took the ability to travel across the U.S. from about six months in 1847 to about 10 days. Oh my gosh, that's an incredible that's development. Huge. You yeah. can do that in a Volvo. <laughs> you couldn't do it before then. But the railroad brought in a lot of opportunity for people to be moving from east to west to do all these things to settle down. There were people still trying to get into the gold prospecting at that time. And the very interesting thing about that is what do people bring with them when they're traveling to settle their entire life? All their money? All their money! All their money! Yeah, it was a, a lot different than what was happening before where people would might might move out, get established, and then send for their stuff. But again, it took six months and it wasn't so structured, you know, there weren't stops. There were there were forts and things where people would stop and buy ox and wagon wheels. And, um, and ford that river on the Oregon yep, Trail. Yep. We and, we and, have and die of dysentery. You cannot talk about the old West without talking about the Oregon Trail. So here it is. But it made it so much faster and then it even helped bring in things like the Pony Express, which dropped travel and word down immediately to about 10 days. And telegraphs came out in the 1880s. So that also made it easier for everybody to talk to each other. So all these things created opportunities for people both good and ill. Yes, absolutely. That's good stuff. So Butch Cassidy... He was born Robert Leroy Parker. Leroy Parker. <laughs> he did kind of uh, Leroy Jenkins his way around the West, didn't he? A little bit. Just as a side note, Jackson, I have a thing from sometimes when we're in foreign countries and we go to a museum, we might not like pay for the guide. And so we'll accidentally end up going like backwards or whatever through the museum. And we call it Leroy Jenkinsing. <laughs> we're just, just going to Leroy Jenkins this American just, style. Just got to go for it sometimes. Yeah. So he was born April 14th, 1866 in Beaver, Utah. Although uh, later he'd claim he was born in New York City. New York City. So he was known as Roy to his family. Although I did also hear on the most notorious podcast that sometimes his family also called him Sally. His parents were Maximilian Parker and Anne Campbell Gillies, who had come from Britain after converting to Mormonism and settled in Utah. And Barb, I believe you have some stuff on that. I have some wonderful information about how the Cassidy family got to Utah. Robert Parker was Butch's grandfather and was a devout Mormon. And at one point decided, almost against his better judgment from my source, Butch Cassidy Beyond the Grave... He packed up his family and moved to uh, America to help the Mormons who were apparently struggling to stay Mormon there. I guess things were going better in England, and he felt like they had it sorted, so he was going to go help out in the, the Americas. So when they got over there, um, it was not after the Transcontinental Railroad had been f- founded, and it was not a 10-day trip. Yeah. And under the, the clear guidance of Brigham Young, they had decided that, well, and by they, I mean a, a group of about 500 or so Mormons, if I understand, decided that they didn't know much about ox and wagons and fording rivers and all of that. So what they would do is they would keep it simple. They were going to build hand carts. 
And by hand carts, they were carts that would literally be, a person would stand in front of them and it would have two handles and you would pick it up on each side and pick it up. Almost like like what you think of when you think of a rickshaw as a travel source, except these would have all their worldly possessions on them. My God. Unfortunately, they knew about as much about handcart building as they did about oxen and wagons, uh, which is to say very little. <laughs> and so they weren't using the right kind of wood. It wasn't seasoned properly. It was what they call green wood, which falls apart. So uh, many of what was called the handcart pioneers lost their handcarts rather quickly and as such had to abandon quite a few of their worldly possessions along the way. Oh my God. On the way out to Utah. Oh. If anybody would like to learn more about handcarts and wagons, I highly recommend The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride. It was a wonderful recommendation. Do not read it if winter is coming because you will read it in winter and it will horrify you. So that is by Daniel James Brown. Nope, it was not at all who I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it was uh, the guy who wrote uh, Into the Wild mm. and Into Thin Air. And then that other one actually about the Mormons. And I can't remember the name of that one, but mm. it, that one scarred me. That one scarred me good. I'm a true crime fan who actually had to walk away from that book for a little while at one point. So, yeah, that's I'm going to I'm going to read that book but not in the winter, so I should yeah. probably read it now. Okay. I mean, it talks a lot about the Donny, Donner party, which is mind-blowing because it's so much more than what common understanding is today. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it talks about this travel from east to west and all of the hardships. And frankly, I cannot imagine doing it by wagon, let alone doing it by a handcart that you yourself have to carry. I mean, I've had a wheelbarrow that didn't have nice handles. Um, <laughs> oh, the splinters. The splinters. The splinters and the blisters yes. and the back pain and like little maxi. Butch Cassidy's dad was a little in at that time, so it was probably not fun for him to like take his turn at the cart because probably like <sighs> over his shoulders or something. Oh my lord. Um, one of his siblings got lost on the way, and the party was like, Well, we gotta go without you. <gasps> so they um, never found the sibling, did they? They did. Oh, actually. they did. Okay. There's a very endearing tale about how Maxie's mom gave her husband, uh, Robert, a red shawl. And said, you know, if you find him and you guys start working this way, wave the shawl let, so I can see that, that you got him. And a couple days passed and ultimately they're stopped and she stops water and she looks up and it's this perfect movie moment of seeing over the horizon a shape coming as, you know, the sun is setting and she realizes it's her husband. And then up pops a smaller figure with a red shawl wrapped around him. Oh. So, yes, um, this was actually one of the few good stories I've heard about traveling across America and losing a child um, because they, yep, we're getting out of here. They're on their own. <sighs> that that was pretty common. I love so it. So good on the Parkers for making it. Yeah, I was very cynical and just assumed a not happy ending for that. <laughs> so I'm glad that there was a good ending. So yeah, after that rather harrowing journey, uh, Maximilian Parker grew up to marry Anne Campbell Gillies. She, who had also come from Britain and converted to Mormonism. And Butch was born about 10 years after the settlement. They would go on to have 13 children total. 
and they all lived to adulthood. That's a remarkable achievement for that time. That is extremely rare. That is so rare. The number of times I look up a family on Find a Grave and you're like, well, that sibling's dead and that sibling's <laughs> dead and that sibling's dead. And it's so heartbreaking. And usually the mom dies in childbirth too. Yeah, yeah, there's always that. It's amazing to see a family of 13. I mean, this must have been really hardy stock that he came from. You can kind of see it in his face. He comes from hardy stock. It's very square jaw on that Bush Cassidy. Yes, he is a square jawed man. When Butch was 13, his parents took him and his siblings, of which there were only four or five at that point in time, from Beaver to Circleville, Utah. And uh, we talked about Beaver, and we talked about this before the show. You need to tell us about uh, Butch's grandfather's his, yes. his profession. So the original OG Robert Parker of England was considered an educated man, but he was also trained and plied his trade as a weaver. He worked in the mill, and even Maxie was in the mill himself. At one point, he decided that that was not for him and just stormed off at the seasoned old age of 13. But when they moved to the Americas, the Mormon church, as it were, as they were establishing their Mormon stronghold in the West, they sent Parker to Beaver, Utah, because they decided that Beaver would be benefited by his skill. So one may say, in short, that he was destined to be a Beaver Weaver. I love it. Excellent. He was a beaver weaver. Show subtitle. So they're all in Circleville, Utah. And like a lot of people in that region, they made their living by a subsistence farming and raising cattle. But the family was not doing so hot financially. And they ended up losing land in a land dispute. So not great. Butch kind of set off on his own pretty young. And from what I understand, um, Butch's dad and, and Butch himself felt that the Mormon church did him dirty on that one. From what I understand, they, they own this property and another group was squatting on it. An, another Mormon family was squatting on it. Okay. And so it's the Wild West. They didn't really have exactly a magistrate that you could go get the surveys for or to judiciate these things, adjudicate these things. So they went to the church, and the dispute was taken up, and the Parkers said, this is our land, and they're squatting on it. And the Mormon church said, eh, you don't need it. They, they need it more than you do. So they get it, despite the fact that this was an established ranch that they had put a lot of work into. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only a portion of what they owned, but still, you know, you don't want to do all that weeding and ranching and fence building to just be like, And they can take it. It's fine. You're just giving away your work for free, essentially. And your land that could, in perpetuity, be making you money. Yeah. To live Um, on. Especially because, I mean, with cattle out there, you need land. So the more land you got, the more cattle you have. Yeah. And the more money you make off the cattle. This was after the big cattle rush. But at one point in the era, uh, you can make about $40 a head per cattle which works out to about $829 a cow in 2021 money. Oh, okay. There was a a rancher in the 1860s who had 4,000 cattle and made $2.5 million a year (gasps) off that cattle. Holy shit. And that was part of the draw of this time. 
Holy cow. There we go. Holy cow. <laughs> I regretted holy shit as soon as it came out. I was like, no, This no. is the one time that holy cow is the better choice. Exactly. But that was part of the draw of going to Wyoming is that they, they herded all these cows up north because there was so much free space where they could graze and raise these cows. And part of the reason that the, the cow rush died off is because people started buying land. Um, so losing land at this time meant you were losing a very potential large income stream. Yeah. So Maxi really kind of felt he was wronged by the Mormon church on this decision. He stopped going to church. Butch took that same perspective as well. So he also was kind of like, ah, maybe Mormonism isn't my thing. Yeah, he did seem to, to fall away from it and, and set off on his own in his early teens. Charles Learson on the Most Notorious Podcast, and he also has a, a book about Butch Cassidy, said that the way that they put it was he went to go see the elephant, which kind of seemed to be a, a phrase for just going off to see the world. But I've also seen that used, it's funny, I have a specific rem- memory of seeing that used in John Jake's historical novels in the Civil War when a man saw battle for the first time, or even maybe even in the Revolutionary War, because there was some of that in his novels too. He, you know, the, the look on his face and, the, and his bearing and everything, and the, the way that he was changed by it, he had seen the elephant. So there's a couple different ways that that phrasing can be used, I guess. He worked on some ranches, some farms, and even for a butcher, which might be where the nickname Butch came from. Oh. Or it could just mean tough guy. And the name Cassidy came from a friend and cattle rustler who kind of taught him the, the cowboy ways. And the name change itself seemed to come about so that he didn't sully the family name with some of his later activities, shall we say. Yeah. Sort of a courtesy to his family. And I know that that came from Mike Cassidy, who was a, a bit of a line straddler. He was very well regarded. He had great cattle skills. He knew how to break a horse, how to teach somebody how to ride. And he is where Butch learned a lot about what he did. Mike Cassidy is is said to be the one who gave Butch his first gun and money to go buy bullets and taught him how to shoot. There you go. Yeah, really, really bringing him into this world. Yeah, yeah. Perfect namesake for him because he helped make that man mm-hmm. be the Butch. <laughs> yeah, be the, be the Butch that he was meant to be. This was also when he committed his first crime. He came into town in 1880, and he needed some pants or overalls, but the store was closed. So he just broke in and grabbed some pants and also some pie and scribbled out an IOU for the store owner, left his name on there and everything. He was just like, well, you know, you weren't open, so I grabbed some stuff. Just, you know, I'll, I'll be back to, to pay you. Sources very wildly on this, but some say that nothing came about. Some say that he was charged and tried, but the jury acquitted him. Mm. In 1884, around that time, he had really started getting into cattle rustling. And cattle rustling is basically cattle theft. In my mind, I always get it confused with herding. And I'm always like, oh, they're just herding the cattle. I'm like, no, they're stealing it, Christy. They're stealing the cattle. And it was a lot easier and almost kind of the done thing for a little while until the big corporations got in there. Well, even for a while, the big corporations were kind of aware of it and okay with it. 
That's where the term maverickin' came about, Ooh. is that cows that kind of wandered off on their own or if they weren't branded... Like, basically, if it didn't have a label on it, you know that joke you see where people are like, oh, it doesn't have a label on it. I guess it's free. Yes. That happened with cows. Yeah. Oh, Where yeah. these smaller outfits would find these cows or maybe, you know, find these cows. <laughs> yeah. I'm using air quotes now. And if they weren't branded, then they would just kind of, you know, take them on home and put their own label on them. Exactly. And yeah. so this was called mavericking. And for a while, the big, the big outfits were kind of okay with it. And then they kind of said, well, maybe we have a problem with that now. So um, at one point it was kind of a, an open secret that it happened. Mm. So yeah, he did this. And as the corporations and the, the big outfits started being a little more serious about it, the law started looking at him more closely. He was wandering. He was in Green River, Utah, then Robber's Roost, Utah. Perhaps some foreshadowing? Perhaps. And then Telluride, California. And the thing about Butch is we're going to get into the crimes. We're going to have a whole section of crimes and everything. But this is more about who he was as a person. He was a charming, affable, popular Dude, people just liked him. He was also a big reader. Charles Learson said he always had a book in his saddlebag. Love it. I do too. And he was also true to his word. One legend has him requesting release from jail the night before his sentence started, and the authorities agreed. And then, as he promised, he came back the next day ready for his sentence. He was like, I just need a night away, and I'll come back, I swear. And they were like... All right, let's see what happens, I guess. <laughs> and and that's that's something that speaks a lot to who Butch Cassidy was as a person. And and there was a certain naivete about him, especially that comes through with that first crime, where he believed that, like, you know, if you give somebody their word and you follow up on it, that's just how it is. Yeah. Like, if somebody, if he was a shopkeeper and somebody left him a note that said they stole pants and pie, he would have been like, oh, I'll see him later this afternoon. They wouldn't do me dirty like that. They would. He would just trust. He was actually a trusting dude, and he felt that, as you do, others do as well. So, yeah, it's perfectly in his character to be like, listen, I promise, I'll come back, <laughs> and then to totally come back. Exactly, exactly. That's just who he is. He did steal a lot of money in his career, but it was said that with the hall, he would throw these big parties. And he was very generous. It wasn't quite a Robin Hood thing, but the money did go back into the economies of these small towns. So it did maybe indirectly help people. A later description of him would report that this is, is how he appeared. Alias Parker, alias Ingerfield. That's the only time I've seen that. Weight, 165 pounds. Height, Five foot eight inches, features regular, small blue deep set eyes, two cut scars on back of head, small red scar under left eye, red mark on side of back, small brown mole on calf, good build, light brown hair. I like how they they smash all those scars in and then they finish off with the actual like more pertinent stuff that'll help you recognize them. You're not gonna see this guy with a a small brown mole on his calf and be like, that's Butch Cassidy. Excuse me, sir. May I just check the back of your head for some scars, please? Uh, I noticed you got one under your eye, but I really need to see the back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that is also, in, in a way, good writing because of uh, the 
primacy and recency, where you want to put the most important stuff at the beginning and the end of mm. the sentence, and the less important stuff in the middle. So I, as much as I criticize, I shouldn't be. So, At one point in 1894, he was doing some ranching, and he started up a relationship with Anne Bassett, a.k.a. Queen Anne Bassett. Woo-hoo. Love it. She was also a rancher. Her father was a rancher who did a lot of business with uh, Butch Cassidy, and she was also an outlaw. And when they hooked up, she was 15. Oh, dear. And he was 28. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, I was just doing some random Wikipedia surfing today, pretty much same age difference between Aaliyah and... R. Kelly. I, I knew it was R. Yep. Kelly. My brain was going Chris Brown, but I was like, nope, not him. You were distracted by the look of horror on my face. <laughs> it was a little bit, yes, I will admit. And so he also got arrested for wrestling that year and ended up spending a year and a half in Wyoming State Prison. For wrestling. Rustling. Oh, rustling. Wrestling. Well, okay. for, yeah. And so we'll get a little bit into that because it is actually, a, I think, a testament to his character, how this turned out. So... It seemed like this was the case where the big cattle operations and law enforcement were trying to make an example out of him because he was pretty well known. Mm-hmm. And so if you could get Butch Cassidy put behind bars, that might put the fear of God into some people. Yeah. So You need a face. Exactly. So he was first charged with horse theft, and then he was found innocent. And then they immediately charged him with stealing another horse. And according to Charles Learson, it was worth $40, and anything over $20 was grand larceny, which, of course, would get to a bigger sentence. The judge did convict him, but changed it to a $5 horse to mitigate the grand larceny and sentenced him to only two years. After the sentence came down, Butch Cassidy asked for a pencil and paper and wrote the judge a note saying that he had nothing to complain about, that justice had been served, and expressing his gratitude for a fair trial. See, a nice guy. That's who he is. He's just a gentleman, really. And that's at least where we know the Cassidy nickname started, historically speaking, as it was actually on his prison paperwork as his last name. Mm. But his first name, if I remember correctly, was listed as George. And then that judge wrote a letter to the governor, the same judge who sentenced him, wrote a letter to the governor in it, he referred to him as Cassidy, but it was Cassidy, how he spelled it. So I was reading that letter and I was just hitting my head every time because I was like, no, stop it. You're hurting my brain. So I have some quotes from that letter because it's amazing. He wrote a letter to the governor trying to get him a, a pardon or at least get his sentence shortened. Cassidy is a man that would be hard to describe, a brave, daring fellow, and a man well calculated to be a leader. And should his inclinations run that way, I have no doubt that he would be capable of organizing and leading a lot of desperate men to desperate deeds. The judge went on in this seven-page letter to say that he felt Cassidy should be released and allowed to come back to the county where he'd been convicted, and, quote, that owing to the peculiar condition of affairs in Fremont County, and we may as well admit that conditions are of the worst, that it would be greatly to the advantage of law and order if Cassidy were allowed to return there, and his services were secured to the apprehension of those that are preying upon the people. He wanted to get Butch Cassidy into law enforcement. Yeah. He wanted to you know, be a deputy or a marshal or something, you know, like get him in here. He recognized him as a smart guy. I mean, that wasn't uncommon back then. You know, they they did almost what they do these days where they flip hackers 
No, who better knows how to beat a criminal than a criminal? Exactly. Wild Bill Hickok and went back and forth. If you need an honest criminal, Butch Cassidy seemed like a, a good option. And everybody seemed to agree with this. There was a petition attached to the letter that included the signatures of the Fremont County Sheriff, the Deputy Sheriff, the Mayor, an ex-Mayor, possibly a Senator, the City Marshal, ex-Sheriff, and a member of City Council. See? I'm just saying a, a nice letter of gratitude to the right person can go a long way. A good thank you note. Butch Cassidy knew the value of a good thank you a note. A good thank you note. Yes. And sure enough, he was pardoned and he got out six months early. Then when he got out, he hooked up with Josie Bassett. She was Ann Bassett's older sister, also a rancher and an outlaw, and was thankfully 22 at the time. Thank God. A little better. For a little bit. And then he and Ann got back together. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. There were other relationships in the, the general group that he was hanging with at that time period. And each sister had relationships with other outlaws in Butch's circle. There was so much interdating, interdating, I don't know how to say that, among the group. But everybody seemed to really get along. It just kind of was almost like this weird Wild West 60s free love kind of thing. Sense of honor and accepting the fact that when you're the only game in town, you got to share. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true, yes. So, or maybe conversely, when you're only the only game in town, you get to pick. You do, yes. Let's talk about some of the people that Butch Cassidy hung out with. I bet they have a really fun name. I bet they do. It is, in fact, the Wild Bunch. <laughs> so, the sources vary. One might say wildly oh. <laughs> on when the gang started forming. Some have it as uh, happening in the late 1880s. Others about 10 years later after Butch Cassidy's stint in prison. And it was his express intention. This was not an accident. It was his intention to make a sort of company of train robbers. A train robber syndicate, A I'm train told. robber syndicate, yes, of which he would be the leader. Yes. I believe he actually had a pitch meeting with over 200 people attending as he described his uh, grandiose plans. He gave him his business plan. He gave him the business. So he starts recruiting some of the best of the best outlaws. Or if they're outlaws, is it the, maybe it's the worst of the, it's the best of the worst. Best of the worst. The best of the worst. So among them were Elsie Lay, Dick Maxwell, Laura Bullion, George Flatnose Curry, Harvey Kid Curry Logan, and Harry Longabaugh, whose name you probably don't know because he went by the Sundance Kid. And eventually others would join up, including a fellow former Mormon, Henry Wilbur Bub Meeks, and George Curry, spelled with an I-E. There's so many Curries in... Wait, actually that was... Maybe that's the same as George Flatnose Curry or a different one. Who knows? With the way that they, everything was spelled, you know, spellings varied so much, it's hard to tell whether there were two George Curries or not. And that frankly, would be ironic. I mean, the nice thing about being an outlaw is that, you know, you could go one place and be one person and go to another place and be another. So he could be both. He could be entirely different. Maybe they said, that's too many George Sutherlands and just said, Give, okay, you have a new name now. Yeah, exactly. And we see this with uh, Sundance Kid's girlfriend, actually, I think ended up being his wife, at a place. History doesn't know who the hell she is. There's some speculation that she was one of the Bassett sisters. <laughs> That's one of the options. <laughs> so you see this with, with identity and 
your place in society not being so established by having identification papers and, and documents and needing those and having these systems in place and databases and files and everything that is so much easier to just change who you are. Much like Parker became Cassidy. Yep. So different sources put membership in this group, this bunch, one might say, at anywhere from 10 to 200, or as the article I quoted at the beginning said, 500. And people did kind of wander in and out. The San Francisco Call has this article, which, by the way, I did go looking in some international press just to see how far this reached. And there's a website called Trove that has Australian newspaper articles. And on there I found in the Kargooli Western Argus. (laughs) Your pronunciation can be the only option here. Really? (laughs) Right? They had the exact same article that was in the San Francisco Call, but their title was different. They called, their title was An Army of Ruffians. Ruffians. <laughs> and I love that. So the same article made it internationally. There are women among these outlaws, too, who ride with them on their wild forays and take pride in their association with these bold and daring freebooters. Even Calamity Jane, in the old days of her association with Deadwood Dick, (laughs) could not surpass these picturesque females in their wild career. Actually, there were five women who were allowed in the gang's kind of main hideaway hangout, the Hole in the Wall. The Hole in the Wall. And Josie and Anne were among those women. Now... It wasn't ever really one big gang. It wasn't really organized crime, you might say. It was disorganized crime. It was the seat of your pants crime. It was a wild bunch. It was a wild bunch, exactly. It was like a loosely formed organisms, several of them with symbiotic relationships, working together towards the same goal. But they did have to live by Butch's rules. And one rule was that you did not hurt the common man during your crimes. So... If they were robbing, say, a train, and the passengers would automatically see the robbers and put their stuff out, you know, here's my money, here's my jewelry, take it, please don't shoot me. And Butch would say, no, 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 we're not, no, we're not here for that. We're here for the safe. You're good. You're fine. So, and they also really, you dress for the job you want. (laughs) And they did. They dressed up nice. And when they were committing robberies, they would make a point of, They would kind of make their manners really harsh with people in order to establish authority in an attempt to not have to use violence to do that. And also in the, 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 they dressed up nice. There's that one iconic photo of Butch Cassidy and some of the wild bunch. It's five of them and they're all dressed up in their, their, their getups. They could be bankers. They could be bankers. Yeah. Their suits and their hats. And it was just kind of taken as a lark. They were like, wouldn't it be funny if we outlaws got pictures taken in the same suits we used to rob banks and stuff? That was was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. There's a, I can't remember if, I don't think it was the Wild Bunch themselves, but another outlaw gang at that point. They, They had been, as the myth goes, they would look at people's hands while they were train robbing. And if they were rough and callous, they're like, no, we don't want you. Oh. Like, we know you, we we know your life, we ain't about that. You're the common man. Yeah. But if I see somebody with smooth skin, yeah. I'm taking their money. <laughs> because I know that they're a different class. Mm-hmm. Interesting, very interesting. 
Let's talk about this hideaway for outlaws, the hole in the wall. So Butch Cassidy, <laughs> Barb is so excited. She's like dancing over here. <laughs> it's just, a, you know, you get a good name for a good little like juke joint. You want to dance. The yeah. hole in the wall. The hole in the wall is perfect. I love it. So Butch was an early adopter of the Outlaw Trail, which goes from Mexico through Utah and then to Montana. And it was a sort of network of places where outlaws could find safe haven, whether it was hideouts or ranches that didn't mind hiring them. And so the Hole in the Wall was established in central Wyoming as the main and best hideout for the gang that Cassidy was, was building up here. This according to the San Francisco Call Again. They had a very large, full-page article, so I got a lot out of that. Nice! The camp is hidden away somewhere in that wild, mountainous district to the northwest of Casper, Wyoming. In their retreats are numerous caves, luxuriously fitted up and containing subsistence sufficient for months. And this from the San Diego Union. The hole in the wall is a fastness practically impregnable, and capable of being successfully defended by a few men against almost any force. So there were five camps uh, all in all, and they kind of made a chain that went for hundreds of miles, again from the SF call. Between these posts, communication is maintained by a regular system of couriers and cipher dispatches, facilitating the cooperation of two or more bands when an enterprise of more than the usual magnitude is undertaken. So there is some organization here. There's also planning of crimes, not just going in there willy-nilly. So, you know, when I said it was not organized crime, it's organized on a sort of an individual level, but it's not, you know, it's not the mob. The criminals were organized. The crimes, not so much. Or maybe backwards, but... A little bit, Yeah. But Hole in the Wall, from what I understand, they were an ideal place for cattle rustling mm -hmm. because they did have decent land up there where you could graze a whole lot of cows. They were hard to get to. So unless you had a really good idea of where it was and why you needed to be there, you weren't going to end up that way. So that was part of why that area started to get used for stealing cattle is because it was such an ideal place and there he kind of had the infrastructure going. And if there's a, a network of caves already, that's a great hideout spot. There's, there's many, many benefits to this spot. And the people around them were pretty okay with this. Uh, again, from the San Francisco call, many settlers purchase immunity by extending assistance in various ways. And the robbers even attend country dances and other functions Occasionally shooting up the town or indulging in other forms of recreation. I don't think when they say shooting up the town, they mean, you know, like mass shooting. <laughs> they, I think they just mean, let's go out with some guns and have some fun and <laughs> drink some whiskey or whatever. And so that cattle wrestling, rustling out there, cattle wrestling, I keep on saying that, <laughs> was, was a big source of income. San Francisco call again. One company in central Utah lost 2,000 head during the past two years, worth at present prices $80,000. That's $2.7 million today. However, any operation that promises adventure and financial reward is never overlooked. Trains are held up, express companies and banks are robbed, and even individuals, when known to have money in their possession, are relieved of their possessions in true road agent style. And I think some of them did that 
as far as like holding up an individual, but I don't think that Butch Cassidy did, and I don't think he allowed it in his presence. And there's there's obviously some overlap, but one of the interesting things is that the cattle rustling, you know, there was a, a cattle boom at that point that eventually went bust, mm-hmm. where there were too many cows. They were too hard to sustain, and a drought kicked in, oh. and suddenly with capitalism coming in, free land was disappearing as well. So this massive boom just went flat and suddenly cows were not the brown gold that they were at one point. Brown gold. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's in my notes actually is all caps. Cows were brown gold. (laughs) So when this bust happened, all the cattle rustling, you know, was less profitable as well. So when you're a criminal and you're trying to do crimes... What do you do instead? Well, perhaps a great alternate is all these fancy people with their fancy money on their fancy trains. Or in a bank. A bank. We have some notable crimes here to talk about. So really the first one that's known about, aside from uh, stealing pants and leaving an IOU, and pie. Man after my own heart, honestly. I want to know what pie. I know, me too. It's killing me. I'm going to say... Apple seems likely. I mean, it's America. (laughs) Maybe it was like boysenberry. It was probably something weird. Something with like dried fruit. Maybe. Maybe. Also depends on the time of year. We don't know that specifically. Yeah. So, or at least I don't know it specifically. Wasn't in any of my sources. So if you have a historical know-how of pie in the Wild West... Reach out to us on our socials. <laughs> yes. Old Timey Crimey on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And let us know. Or if you just have a theory about what kind of pie he might have stolen, again, reach out to us on our socials. Yes, exactly. So on June 24th, 1889, Butch Cassidy uh, robbed the San Miguel Bank in Telluride. Now, again, I, like I said, he did this smart He joined up with three cowboys, and instead of rushing in there all hot-headed and ignorant, they cased the joint. That's what you got to do. You got to case the joint. You know, as a librarian, I support this. You have to do your research. You do. You absolutely. Just as a person who does a lot of research, you have to do your research. So I, I do... I approve of the fact that Butch Cassidy was a reader, he liked pie, and he did his research. I'm on the rare occasion of actually coming down on the criminal side kind of here. So So they had a thorough idea of what they were dealing with, and they managed to snag $20,000 from that one robbery. That is $600,000 today. And then they went straight into hiding. That's a score. That's a score, yeah. And then he had his 1894 conviction was in jail... And after that, probably put together the Wild Bunch. And then they committed their first known robbery, August 13th, 1896. It was a bank in, I want to say this the French way, but I have a feeling they don't pronounce it that way. I'm going to go with what they probably say, Montpelier. Montpelier. Yeah, Montpelier, Idaho. Now say it the French way. Montpelier. Now say it the Pittsburgh way. Montpelier. Matt Pellier? Matt Pellier. There you, you go. Yeah, you gotta, to get Matt Pellier. gotta get that ant in there. Yeah, pants and that. This, of course, there was planning and preparation involved here, and they got $7,000 for that. So that's $230,000 today. I was all over measuringworth.com. So 
planning was they hawked around a bunch afterwards to keep away from the law. They went from Idaho to Iowa to Michigan. And it was in Michigan that Butch Cassidy may have actually run into a sheriff who was a part of the very manhunt that was going on looking for Butch Cassidy. And they may have shared a hotel room. But the, it was dark and the man didn't get enough. There was uh, a lot of fumbling. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, the, the, the hotels would be a lot rougher. You would have multiple people sleeping in a room and maybe not so much electric lighting. So it's kind of funny if that actually did happen. But it may be apocryphal. We don't know. And in April 1897, Butch Cassidy and Elsie Lay, and possibly more of the gang, but some sources do have this as just a two-man job, robbed the payroll of the Pleasant Valley Coal Company as the train carrying it was rolling into Castlegate, Utah. And that was really a sweet spot with the train rides, is not only that, you know, as we talked about maybe a little bit, that people were moving out and bringing their wealth, but Mm -hmm. also companies were moving out. And companies have people that need paid. So they literally were just chunking payroll on a train and going, off you go! Yeah, there was a, a, a safe in what was called the express car. Um, but all that really did, if you ask me, is just tell the gangs exactly where to rob on the trains. Exactly, yeah. And you can actually see this in some modern media, because every time I ran into that, I just kept on thinking of Firefly. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> in Serenity, that the very first thing they do is they're robbing the payroll on, you know, some, some podunk planet. I knew they were so historically accurate. Right? Brown coat and everything. (laughs) So, and again, preparation, preparation. That is the key here. One thing they did was they would do sort of this horse relay where they would set horses spaced out at intervals so that they could switch horses when one got tired. You've ridden horses. Mm -hmm. If you run a horse too hard, it's going to tire out and it's (laughs) it's just not going to be useful to you anymore. And it's also cruel to the animal, too. If only they made an animal that was better suited to these arid desert conditions. I know. I can't think of any. No. 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 So Check out our Patreon, folks. <laughs> you might hear about an animal that is better suited to these arid desert conditions and its presence in the West during this time period. So they would have this relay of horses where they could get a fresh horse every so often as they needed it. And after this, he ended up in Wyoming for a while, working on a ranch. And then in 1898, that article I mentioned that was in the San Francisco Call and also in the Qualguli Western Argus. I have no idea if I got that right. I know Argus was right. <laughs> it's in here somewhere. It's one of these. It's in the Argus. We'll just say the Argus. The Argus. The, in the Argus in Australia. So this went international. Butch Cassidy had international fame at this point. And here are some choice quotes from this. As a killer, he has earned a reputation during the last 10 years, probably equaled in the West only by that of Wild Bill Hickok. Peace to his ashes. (laughs) So, but many sources say that he never killed anyone. So this article was pretty biased on one side. Then again, this podcast might be pretty biased on the other side. We don't know for sure. I mean, back in the day, you needed bad guys to be bad. Yes. And really, a lot of these guys were almost anti-heroes. I mean, you know, Cassidy switched from being a cattleman to a cattle rustler. You know, he took some of these, you know, jobs where, you know, they say, you know, you went straight. Um, He wrote an IOU. I know. He wrote a note to a judge. 
I I feel like it, it it's in the realm of possibility that he killed somebody, mm-hmm. but I don't think it would have been cold blooded. I think it would have really affected him if it did. Yeah, and possibly been like he out of probably would have given like half the take to the widow. Yeah, you know, with yeah. a, a very nice apology. He would have bought the casket. He seems like a stand up guy. He would have bought him a pie. And another thing is in the media. Nice guys don't sell the papes, you know? Nope. <laughs> Nobody's out there going, extra, extra, read all about it. Nice guy leaves an IOU for pants <laughs> and pie. And nope. Nobody's out there saying that. Nobody's out there saying, you know, buy this paper and this read this article about this nice man who never killed anybody. We're, I, we're on this podcast here about people who kill people telling you right now <laughs> that people gravitate towards the blood. If it bleeds, it leads. There's a reason it's a saying. Yeah, so here's another quote. Few men who know him would care to rouse his ire, for although a man of wonderful nerve, unlike most of his class, he is possessed of a fearful temper. Sometimes it gets beyond his control, and then he throws all caution to the wind and becomes utterly reckless. And then as for rewards, rewards have been repeatedly offered for Butch Cassidy, dead or alive, and after each fresh outbreak, these rewards have invariably increased. If all the offers which have been made from time to time hold good, the slayer of Butch, should he ever live to claim his reward, would be entitled to upward of $20,000 in blood money. That's $700,000 a day. And less than two months later... Butch Cassidy is dead, according to the newspapers. What? I know, right? According to the steamboat pilot, a notorious outlaw, Joe Walker, had rustled some cattle and robbed the cattlemen. The sheriff and a posse followed them, and then there was a shootout, and it turned out that the rustlers had met up with Butch. He and Walker were killed, and others in the gang were captured. And then ten days later, they're like, oops, nope. They buried the dead outlaw, then exhumed him, so the sheriff of another county, who had at one point kept Butch Cassidy in jail for three months, so knew his face pretty well, could get a look at him, and he was like, no, this is not Butch Cassidy, you idiots. And that was something that happened a lot. This was, according to Charles Learson, one of more than 50 times that he was reported dead, not counting the time he actually probably died. I mean, I feel like in some certain situations, I mean, obviously this this might not be the case, but my pure conjecture, as easy as it was for somebody to go 100 miles away and take an entirely new name, mm-hmm. it would be as easy as going 100 miles away and picking up a really famous name. Yes. You know? Absolutely. So I feel that could be a situation where everybody thought they were working with Butch Cassidy, except the people who knew him and the person per- who was perhaps pretending. Perhaps it was an imposter. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I mean, there were imposters later. And another aspect of this is the fact that there were so many reportings of his death at different times. And I think that factors into what we're going to talk about later about when or whether or how he actually died. Because it's kind of a the press who cried wolf, <laughs> you know? The press has said so many times, Butch Cassidy is dead. And then they're like, oh, no, sorry, we were wrong. So when they finally report Butch Cassidy is dead, everybody's like, no, we don't believe you. We're going to look for any reason to not. Elvis still walks the earth. So then there was a lot of robbing of trains and banks. They got $70,000 from a Rio Grande train in New Mexico. That's over $2.3 million today. <laughs> you imagine the party. The party. The party I could, I could throw with that. 
be a lot of bean dip. So much bean dip. So much bean dip. I might even spring. Bean dip hot tub? Bean dip hot tub. Absolutely. Yes. 2.5 million, folks. Let's get to that Patreon. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So I can have a bean dip hot tub. That's the whole point of all of this. This particular next robbery is very interesting. On June 2nd, 1899, Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch robbed the Overland Flyer passenger train. So they had six masked men hold it up at 2.15 in the morning near Wilcox, Wyoming. They flagged the train down, and then two men got into the car and presented guns, as they put it in the article about it, very euphemistically, to the engineer and his firemen, and they told them, what we need you to do is get the train across the bridge and then stop. Then they blew up the bridge behind them, because there was a second section of the train that ran 10 minutes behind. So they wanted to make sure the second section couldn't reach them. They had the crew separate the express car and move it down the line a little bit so it wasn't too close to the passenger compartment because what they were about to do might be dangerous because they liked their dynamite. Woohoo! So they blew up the express car in order to open the safe. They now, blew up a whole train car to open the safe, and it was crushed. So from what I understand, there's actually a little bit of a, like, I would imagine Yakety Sax playing Benny Hill run around during this moment might not be that dramatic. But from what I understand, they get on the, tr- the train, they do the thing with the splitting the bridge, and then they ask one of the people, get us into the express car. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no. And they're like, heck, we got dynamite. And they used so much dynamite that the explosion stunned the train employee. So then they're like, get us in the safe. And he's like, do what? (laughs) And he was so stunned that they said, you know what? It worked for us once. And so they blew the safe with even more dynamite. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the version I have from the paper, and this was within hours of this happening, actually, that this was published. We'll, We'll get to another funny aspect of that. Engineer Jones, who did not intend to submit to the holdup, was roughly handled by the desperados, being struck over the head with a billy and otherwise hurt. Woodcock, the express messenger, would not open the door when they made the demand, and the door was blown open by dynamite, and Woodcock was knocked down and rendered insensible. Insensible, my friend. Sounds about right. So Clearly uh, there's no time for the white man to become sensible. No, no, not when he's been rendered insensible. Not when we've got dynamite. No, no. And uh, speaking of dynamite, another thing it blew up was the shipment of raspberries on the train. Oh, no. And so that got all over the money. And so it was pretty easy to identify uh, the the stolen cash, kind of marked bills there with raspberry jam. Gosh, can you imagine (laughs) if that's the source of marking bills? Maybe. It worked on Cassidy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So they looted the safe and the baggage car. And uh, initial reports were that they'd gotten $36,000 in cash and $10,000 in diamonds. What would that be in 2020 money, Christy? That would be about $1.5 million today total. You know I've always got it. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> so there was a manhunt with posses being organized all over. One shootout ended in a sheriff's death, and this one was big enough to get the Pinkertons on the case. If you're curious about the Pinkertons, my, I hope not defunct, I really need to get on that uh, podcast, Detectives by the Decade has a short series on the Pinkertons. By the Decade. Detectives by the Decade. So, 
Uh, initially, it wasn't known for sure in the in the immediate reports whether it was Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch, but that became known eventually. The Union Pacific, whose train this was, put up $1,000 a head for the robbers. That's $33,000 a piece today. And the very next morning, so this happened at 2.15 a.m., so that morning in New York City, the railroad baron who owned the train woke up, maybe had his coffee and some toast, and read the newspaper. In a very posh robe, I'm sure. Oh, very posh. In a very posh apartment, too. And he probably had, like, a pince-nez glasses. And uh, his eyebrows probably shut up when he read uh, about his train being robbed. And so this is an example that we have of communication speeding up with telegraph becoming more entrenched and, and being a method used by media and the authorities. And so word is able to arrive much more quickly to, say, the victim of a crime who's one of the victims of a crime, who's uh, thousands of miles away and in New York City, and he gets that information within, like, six hours. I'd like to imagine he spilled his coffee. Oh, yeah, I like it, yeah. I like Severe it. All, upset. All over that posh robe. Stained it so bad, and the maid could not get it out because it is so hard to hire good help nowadays. Well, they didn't have tonic water at that point. Isn't that what you use for everything? Or seltzer? seltzer. Tonic. I thought it was seltzer. We're going to have to spill some self stuff and find out. I'm on for it, for science. <laughs> so, but on your clothes, not mine. <laughs> not on my posh bathrobe. No, not my posh bathrobe. In August 1900, the Wild Bunch robbed a Union Pacific train in Tipton, Wyoming, and made off with $50,000. At some point, I kind of slacked on the what's it today because I feel like people get the idea. We know it's a whole darn lot. Like I said, $36,000 cash, 10K in diamonds, that's $46,000. That's very close to $50,000. So this would be uh, a little bit more than $1.5 So at some point I was like, I have too many tabs open. I can't even find measuring worth now. <laughs> so one of the same things that led to the civilization of the Wild West, improved communication like we talked about, also was kind of what led to the Wild Bunch and especially Bush Cassidy giving up the ghost. It was way too easy for law enforcement to communicate and collaborate in order to find them. Whereas previously, when everything was a lot wilder and communication was harder between departments and towns, you can get away with a lot more. Those pesky, pesky Pinkertons. And they, yeah, you get the Pinkertons involved and my gosh, good luck. I mean, there's a reason that their logo is an unblinking eye. The Pinkertons never sleep. So in, in cases like this, there were circulars sent to banks with descriptions of the men and descriptions of the banknotes stolen. And this resulted in too many close calls when they tried to pass the banknotes back into circulation. I read two separate articles in two separate places. One was in Nashville, Tennessee. And I think the other one might have been in Utah where this happened, where one of the members of the, the gang or their associates tried to pass the notes and ended up getting at least temporarily arrested, but nothing could be proved. And in one case, it was the Sundance Kid and at a place. It was getting hot. <laughs> it was getting real hot in here. And so the wildness that let them do their thing was no longer present. They had their last Wild Bunch gang robbery, probably, in the summer of 1901. It was near Wagner, Montana, on July 30th. Butch Cassidy may or may not have been there for the robbery, he was definitely there for doling out the loot. 
<laughs> so he was there for the most important part, in my opinion. And so, yeah, things started getting a little hot. That was the robbery where, actually, I'm sorry, it was Helena, Montana, where Sundance and his girlfriend were in November of that year. They were staying under the names Mr. and Mrs. J.W. Rose. J.W. Rose. J.W. Rose. And they were Yeah. Oh, you've got to add an Esquire to that. Absolutely. And they were caught trying to pass notes at the Helena National Bank. So it's pretty soon after that in 1902 that Butch Cassidy is off to Argentina with the Sundance Kid and Etta Place, who were newly married. Aww. Butch and Sundance ran a ranch from 1902 to around 1906, and this from the Route County Courier in Colorado in 1903. I'll report that Butch has reformed. He's settled down to ranching and will hereafter live a pious life. He never was really bad, but was unintentionally drawn into the killing business by bad associates. Perhaps the removal of the four-figure price on his head would facilitate his reform. At any rate, it would render the piety play less hazardous to Butch. It's true. Make life a little bit easier without that, that hanging over your head. He did seem to really want to make a go of it as a rancher. But that straight and narrow path. But it's got brambles on either side. <laughs> and then there's paths forking out from it. And you're like really tempted because you're like, that one looks a little easier than the one I'm on with all the brambles and the thorns and the hard stuff. So they ended up back in the outlaw world, wandering around South America, planning and executing robberies on banks, trains and mine stations. And at a place, she kind of had enough of this. She'd been homesick a lot during this period. And they actually brought her back once uh, and sort of disguised themselves. They went incognito in order to escort her back to the U.S. in order to to visit with her family, which was very sweet. I'd like to imagine that they all have mustaches over their mustaches. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. The fake mustache over the real one. In 1907, she came back to the U.S. permanently. And then in 1908, in the fall, in Bolivia, possibly one man, maybe two, robbed a group carrying mine payroll through a mountain pass. Charles Learson gives it as $200,000 today. because But the conversions, I'm sure, are difficult because it was Bolivian money, and so there's a whole different thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a trip. But robbing, robbing payroll from a mine sure sounds a little familiar here. It does sound very familiar. It sounds like somebody's kind of M.O. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was in a mountain pass. So especially if you have a second person, you can sort of ambush them and then block their exits. Mm-hmm. Very smart. Soon after that, two men went to a little Bolivian mining town, San Vicente, and holed up in a boarding house. The boarding house owner noticed that their mule was from the mining company they had robbed. Oh, there was a brand on it, of course. So he put out the word, and then local authorities plus some soldiers from the Bolivian army came to arrest the men that they were pretty sure were Butch and Sundance who weren't about to go peacefully. A firefight broke out, with Butch and Sundance starting it when the authorities approached. Two soldiers died. And this is the only case we know of where people died where Butch Cassidy was involved. Directly involved. Exactly. So if his bullet struck either one of them, then 
this would be, as far as we know, his first kill. But it's entirely possible it wasn't. It's entirely possible he wasn't the one that killed them, and he never killed anybody, too. Like, there's myriad possibilities here. And so the story goes that at some point, the, the you know, there's kind of a little bit of a, a break in the, the gunfighting. You know, you got to stop for water breaks. Stay hydrated. It's important, people. You know, you got to hydrate. <laughs> you got to hydrate. <laughs> there we go. Perfect timing. And we don't even, even need to pause or edit it. <laughs> Well done, Barb. So, but I mean, firefights are not exactly one bullet, another bullet, one bullet. At some point, you gotta stop and figure who the heck is still alive right now. Yeah, where is my ammo? Is my powder here? Why am I sweating so much? Like, the, y- y'all gotta breathe for a second before you say, "All right, well, we gotta keep going." You gotta take inventory of the situation because you are in an intense situation. A lot's going on. There's a lot of noise, then bullets and death. And you gotta take a moment and say, okay, wait, what all is going on? And reevaluate maybe. And there's also probably a whole lot of gun smoke in the air. Y'all can't oh, even that's... see what you're doing. Exactly, exactly. Very good point. So there's this break in the gunfight as people are taking inventory and hydrating and waiting for the smoke to clear. And from inside the boarding house, they hear a man screaming. Then there's a gunshot. Then there's no more screaming. And then there's another shot. So in the morning, the authorities went inside the boarding house. They found two men dead, shot multiple times. In addition to to shotgun wounds on their extremities, one had a shot in the forehead and the other a shot in the temple. So the authorities went with the theory that one of them got wounded. That was the man who was screaming. The other one gave him a mercy killing and then killed himself. Neither of these men were ever actually formally identified. In fact, they were buried in an unmarked grave, which people have searched for. And anytime they are able to dig up any remains where they think these two men might be buried, they do try to do some DNA tests on those remains, uh, but none of them have ever matched to any uh, descendants or relatives of Butch Cassidy or the Sundance Kid. Well, then where are Butch and Sundance? I don't know. Hmm. That's an excellent question. So there's a couple different stories here, as one might imagine. When we have outlaws, we have somebody who's already, according to the press, died more than 50 times. And so, yes, there's many stories, but it's really interesting, the people that tell these stories. It is all about the sources. Gotta do your research. Exactly. I like how she picks up a book as a visual aid. (laughs) So, there are some tales that this was not Butch and Sundance, and that they, in fact, died in Uruguay in 1911 during the commission of a bank robbery. It's a fairly likely proposition, too. That would be on brand. Very much so. Then there is a doctor who had once helped Butch Cassidy out with a bullet wound. His name was Francis Smith. He said that he saw Butch Cassidy after his supposed 1908 death. Cassidy said he had gone off to Europe, had some plastic surgery to change his appearance, and he proved that he was who he said he was 
by having Dr. Smith look at the bullet wound he had treated all those years ago. And Dr. Smith was like, that is in fact my work. I signed it. <laughs> he didn't look at the two scars at the back of his head and the mole on his right thigh or what have you? Exactly. I know. Come on, dude. Like, catch up. <laughs> Get on our level. <laughs> and then there is his sister, Lula Parker Bettison. She was 86 when the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid came out. That was in 1969. And at that point, she was the last remaining Parker sibling, which always gets me. That always gets me when somebody is the last remaining, especially of a clan that big. The last of 13. My grandfather was the last of 17 when he passed. Ooh, that's three different marriages. My great-grandfather just ran right through them. <laughs> that, is, that is a lot of people to un- outlive. Yes, it is. That's a lot of people to bury. And the thing was that she said, well, yeah, I did outlive him, but not by as much as you think. So what happened was when the movie came out, journalists came looking for her. They sought her out, and she was like, um, y'all got it wrong. My brother did not die in South America in 1908. He came back to America. He came to visit me in 1925, and then he went out and spent his remaining years working as a trapper and a prospector before he died in Spokane, Washington in 1937. So there's her story. I guess if you're going to die 50 times, you might as well make a good life out of 51, right? She also might have said that he went to Europe and did the plastic surgery thing. So we have a couple sources saying that. And Josie Bassett, former girlfriend of Butch, also claimed that she got a visit from the man himself in 1930. She said that he settled down in Utah into the 1940s and then probably died sometime during that period. Now, these are people who would recognize him. These are people who would know him. So there is that aspect. But there was this muddying of the waters because we mentioned the imposters earlier that might have been pretending to be him. And that's how we get these these false death reports. There were many imposters after his death, you know? Yeah, because you want that notoriety. Exactly. And they're taking advantage of this uncertainty. Now, 1940, though, that would have been... He would have been like 74 years old at that point. He was born in 1866. Yeah. Yeah, so he would have lived a nice long life, which is amazing for an outlaw. So it's it's amazing if that happened. Yeah, it had been 74 years old. My math actually worked out on the fly like that. Nice job. Good job. (laughs) Some researchers, in particular Larry Pointer, who I believe you have his book. I do, In Search of Butch Cassidy by Larry Pointer. Yes. He has found some evidence that Butch Cassidy might have continued his usual crimes in Bolivia before heading off to Europe for a facelift. You know, as you do, maybe get everything lifted up a little bit and make it a little perkier. I feel like a facelift anywhere before the 1990s is a risk, but back then... Oh my gosh. Maybe Europe was a little better, but I don't expect very much. It would still be impressive if he actually did survive that. (laughs) I feel like... The odds are almost less in his favor getting a facelift anywhere in the early 1900s than they are getting shot at by a whole bunch of Bolivian soldiers and policemen. (laughs) 
Like, it's almost more dangerous. Very. So, but yeah, Larry Pointer says that he most likely did the facelift, came back, got hitched, and lived his life. And there supposedly is a manuscript that's been found, which Casty himself is said to have written, detailing his life, which is nuts. That would be some very exciting source material. Yes, it would. So that is what I have on that particular stuff before I get to the movie. Do you have any other info on the, you know, what happened after, maybe, if he lived? Not really. Um, The Butch Cassidy Beyond the Grave and In Search of Butch Cassidy books both mention a moment where Butch was allegedly meeting his father beside a Ford vehicle that was very important in each narrative. Um, but they they recognize each other and, and claim each other as kin. They both allege, two entirely different sources, that indeed Cassidy had lived on past San Vicente. So. What do you believe? Um, I think a lot of things are likely, but uh, if I were given the chance to fake somebody's death and just disappear, I would probably do that. I will say it's funny because the one book with Lulu Parker Bettinson telling her accounting to Dora Flack has a picture of their youngest sibling known as Cub, uh, Joseph Rollins Parker. And the book says they both resembled their mother and that he looked like their brother, Robert Leroy. This man looks nothing like Butch Cassidy. Well, from like, here, upside they down. They white. <laughs> That's about it. I'm looking at it upside down, and when you flipped to that page earlier, I thought that was goddamn Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, uh, they're, they're white. They have mouths. Yeah, they don't look alike at all. That's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, I, huh. I don't know. I guess maybe if you were part of the family... You would see the similarities more than a random person a hundred years later. Yeah, that's true. Or at true. least 50 years later. I think this book was printed in 1975. Okay. So almost 50 years later. But Yeah, I think, I think the chances are good as an outlaw. You have a smaller chance of surviving and living into old age. Yeah. But a lot of them did. Yeah. There was one of them that ended up working for, like, the Water Authority in, like, Las Vegas or something. You know, like... And nobody... You you work part of your life as an outlaw, and then part of your life for the Water Authority. (laughs) Talk about riding both sides of that line, man. But with with the shootout in San Vicente, nobody directly identified Butch and Sundance. They never went around saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm Robert Parker, commonly known as Butch Cassidy. Exactly. And I'm Long, you know, I can't remember. It's not Neville Longbottom, but that's what I want to say. (laughs) Harry Longabottom. Harry Longabottom. Also known known as the Sundance Kid. (laughs) Nobody identified them as these people. Exactly. They just identified these people as the ones who had done the coal mine robbery. Yes. So if there's a mistake, and I like, it could be that yes, those people did rob the mine and they were killed, <laughs> but they might not be Butch and Sundance. Exactly. There were plenty of people around who had the same idea, possibly inspired by Butch and other people who had done this, and they were like, "Well, let's rob the mine payroll." It could have been anybody without any sort of formal identification, no pictures, no test, no nothing. And buried an unmarked grave, 
It, it's very sketchy. It's very sketchy. I feel like the possibilities are honestly 50-50 because an outlaw is a life that, yeah, it can be a short one. And the odds tend to be that, yes, it, it will be a short life as an outlaw. But then again, the evidence that we have that it was actually them is scant as hell. If you're looking at it purely from an evidence-based standpoint, we know nothing. This could be any two men. Any two men. And they might have been using that notoriety to make the robbery easier. Because, oh, hey, a bill from, like, a couple blocks away. Yeah. Give me your money. Versus, hey, I'm Butch Cassidy. You know, they... Name strikes fear. Yeah. And you want that. You know, a good threat is priceless. So And that's even if they identify themselves, which we don't know. And then it takes heat off of you because then they're looking for Butch. They're not looking for Bob for a couple blocks away. Yeah. So... I honestly, like, a lot of authors and researchers, for instance, like, Charles Learson... He was on the the Most Notorious podcast and also wrote an entire book and probably knows a lot more than I do. No, definitely knows a lot more than I do having written an entire book. And he falls down on the side, it seems, if I'm remembering correctly, of almost definitely died in Bolivia. Mm. But I just feel like I need more evidence. I need more damn evidence. Test all the DNA. Dig up all the bodies. No, don't. I mean, That's disrespectful. <laughs> I do believe the, the simplest solution is usually the correct one. Yeah. So on one hand, I believe they might have died in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, so far to date, nobody has found DNA evidence to match any graves that have been said, yeah. oh, yes, this was them. Yeah, so, we have nothing confirming it. I think we're inconclusive right now. We are. It's very inconclusive. It could go either way, honestly. And maybe it's really exciting. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe we'll see this solved. This is another case like Tom and Shud, like the boy in the box. Where I'm just like, figure it out, please. Science, come on, do this. Some incredibly wealthy person who is listening to this, please just fund a trip down there so that we can start digging up a whole bunch of uh, mark graves. Yes. Because I'm sure it's super easy to do that. Oh, yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So. Those are our theories, and if you have any theories, if you have any ideas, or if you just have one side or the other that you fall down on, he definitely died in 1908, he definitely lived into 1947, he's uh, with Elvis on Mars, whatever your theory is, uh, please, honestly, we really, I really want to hear theories, because I feel like it's almost like crowdsourcing of possibilities, and I very much enjoy that, so come to our social media and, and let us know what you think. But yeah, before we we finish, I want to talk about the movie. The movie. The movie. It's kind of, I think, a big reason that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid remain such big faces and such big folk heroes of the, the Old West. It came out in 1969. It was written by William Goldman of Princess Bride fame. Yes. And he later said about it, The whole reason I wrote the thing... There is that famous line that Scott Fitzgerald wrote, who was one of my heroes. There are no second acts in American lives. When I read about Cassidy and Longabaugh and the super posse coming after them, that's phenomenal material. They ran to South America and lived there for eight years, and that was what thrilled me. They had a second act. They were more legendary in South America than they had been in the Old West. It's a great story. These two guys and that pretty girl going down to South America and all that stuff. It just seems to me it's a wonderful piece of material. However, this particular aspect of it, the fact that they ran down to South America, was the the exact reason that one studio executive rejected the screenplay. He said, no, I don't like that they run away. 
And then he, somebody told him, no, this is the actual true story of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he said, I don't give a shit. All I know is John Wayne don't run away. <laughs> right? But it did get made, starring Paul Newman and his beautiful goddamn blue eyes. <laughs> so beautiful. And as Butch Cassidy and Robert Redford as the Sundance Kid and Catherine Ross as Etta Place, and the score was by Burt Bacharach. I did not know, I think I read on the, the Wikipedia article about it, that uh, the song uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head came from that score. Wow. I, I know, right? Know I had no idea. And lots of critics did give it hell at first. It was sort of, it was not the critics' darling in the beginning. Everything from the dialogue to the score to the pacing. Everybody's a critic. They are. And critics are the criticistiest of all. That's a hard word I just made up to say. But it was the top grossing film of the year, bringing in over $100 million. It won four Academy Awards. It broke the record at the time for the British Academy Film Awards with nine wins. And in 2008... The American Film Institute picked it as the seventh greatest Western of all time. The seventh. The seventh. To the seventh. To the seventh. Clink. Yes. I would like to know. What is the first? I did not look that up. We'll look that up right now. Do we have some jazzy little hold music? We have me editing things. Or I can put some jazzy little hold music behind this for for comedic. I always enjoy good jazzy little hold music. Top. The Searchers is number one. The Searchers? The Searchers. I have not uh, seen that. Romantic comedy. Western. The Searchers, which came out in 1956. High Noon is number two. Shane. Number three, Unforgiven. Number four, Unforgiven is where uh, we got a name for a duck. Red <coughs> River, number five. The Wild Bunch, number six. Number seven. The Wild Bunch is... Used by a couple groups. I think Jesse James had a wild bunch too, and that was actually where Butch Cassidy's inspiration came from. And Billy the Kid had the very uh, elaborately and distinctly named The Boys. The Boys, yes. Well, he was the kid, and then he had The Boys. And then, of course, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid at number seven, McCabe and Mrs. Miller at eight, Stagecoach at nine, and Cat Baloo at ten. I have heard of Three or four of these. Wow. I have watched none of these. I mean, the only reason I've watched Unforgiven was because of grad school. Uh, we had a, a segment on Westerns. I also got to watch an episode of Firefly for that. So, um, yeah, best best <laughs> assignment ever. Yeah, why is Firefly not on that list? That is what I have on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Do you have anything? No. I think he was a great dude who took some chances and... Put a big middle finger up to capitalism and just did what he needed to do. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I like him. He likes pie. Uh, he appreciates a good thank you note. He's a nice gentleman. There's, there's not a lot to dislike here. I mean, he doesn't like violence. I can get on board with that. And it's nice to not despise somebody that I've spent almost two hours talking about and many more hours than that researching. It's nice to have that break where, you know, you're not talking about, 
Okay, here's the sad part about the victims' lives. He's a criminal, yeah. but he didn't kill babies. Exactly. He didn't kidnap babies, you know. He didn't do he anything just, to babies. It completely did not touch babies. Exactly. And frankly, that's what you want. That is what we want, yes. It's not what we get very often on this podcast, but it is what we want. So yeah, that has been, thank you so much, Barb. You did such a fantastic job. I loved your contributions. This was an f- amazing time. So thank you so much. This is Barb's first time being on a podcast, guys. Yeah. Everybody tell her how amazing she is. Maybe in like some, you know, reviews on uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> exactly. Wherever you can review us. So, and also, again, we've mentioned the social media. Come see us. Putting up pictures all the time. I will put up some smoldering pictures of Paul Newman and Robert Redford, too. Just got to get that eye candy in there. But Butch Cassidy was not a bad-looking guy. Like you said, he's he's got that square jaw. He's from Hardy Stock. He had a nicely square jaw. Yeah. I I would let that man buy me a sarsaparilla. Sure, absolutely. I'd let him buy me a sarsaparilla. And so... And uh, don't forget about our merch and our Amazon wish list. Uh, the links are in the show notes. And also, of course, the Patreon. The patron. <laughs> so you can come see us there. And if I have any more bullshit, as usual, I can't remember. So, Barb, who, by the way, I have spent the imp- entire past two hours struggling not to call you Barn. <laughs> Barb had a typo of her own name in our uh, friend group Discord chat. And it kind of stuck <laughs> where we called her barn for quite a while. And it kind of is very much stuck in my head. So I'm, I'm proud of myself that I called you Barb. <laughs> as infamous as Butch Cassidy was for his train robberies, I am infamous for my autocorrect failures. So um, if you would like to find more of your own, you can follow me at BarbWantsCoffee37 on Twitter or Instagram. I'm hardly on either, but if you want to send me a shout out, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. You should absolutely do that. And that's Barb Wants Coffee 37, not Barn Wants Coffee 37. Wasn't it you who also had the friend chicken this past week instead of fried chicken? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what we were talking about, but we had some friend chicken, not fried chicken. Yeah, yeah. You had some friend chicken. Chickens and are I, our friends. Our delicious, delicious friends. <laughs> yes. So, yes. What are you up to this week? Uh, probably doing some more research for our next section next week. Yes, where you're going to be on the extra extra. Very exciting. I can't wait for that. That's going to be a good time. Different dynamics and changing things up. It's fun. We like it. So We hope Amber is having a blast on vacation. Yes, she better be ready to buckle down when she gets back. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We all love this. So we love talking about murder. So uh, this week I am totally blanking out. All I can ever think of is stuff I need to do for the podcast. And I know I have other stuff. I'm working on a cross stitch for a person, for an event for them. And it's really starting to come together. It's an animal. And it really started to feel like it was becoming the animal when it got feet. Uh, After this has made it to the person, since I've mentioned it several times on the podcast, since it's it's a surprise for them. I will uh, put it up on the social media so that our our you know, people can enjoy it. And you are our people. So I'm doing that. And I think I have some writing to do. I, I need to, to do some writing. And uh, also short story, short podcast. Come find me over there with Chris Garcia 
a friend of the show and also wonderful sponsor who is the reason I have so many sources from newspapers.com and can give you all these wonderful quotes that I do. So yes, uh, that's what I'm doing this week. And uh, I guess thank you so much for listening to our filthy old West words. <laughs> Yee fucking haw. <laughs> There we go. Got it in at the very end. And we'll see you next week, old-timey, crimey listeners. Bye! Bye! My sources this week are Kathy Weiser on Legends of America, Utah.com, Britannica.com, The Most Notorious Podcast with guest Charles Learson, The Wyoming State Archives, the Wikipedia article on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the film, and from Newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, The San Francisco Call, from Colorado Historic Newspapers, Route County Courier, Steamboat Pilot, and the Craig Courier, and from the California Digital Newspaper Collection, the San Fran- nope, the Sacramento Daily Union, and the San Diego Union. There's lots of unions. <laughs> Alrighty, and my sources are Butch Cassidy, Beyond the Grave by W.C. Jameson, In Search of Butch Cassidy by Larry Pointer, Butch Cassidy, My Brother by Lula Parker Bentonson, as told to Dora Flack. The American West, 1865 to 1900, from the classroom materials at the Library of Congress, and TravelWyoming.com, as well as Encyclopedia Britannica. I know it's Patreon. I'm just pronouncing it wrong to mess with everybody. (laughs) I don't know if anybody's noticed, but Amber calls all of our patrons Patreons, and I just let it go. I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> they, they pay good money to hear her call them Patreons, so it's the, actually the reverse of what she does. And, that's and I feel along. awful. So if you I prefer Patreon or Patreon, reach out to us at our <laughs> social media. Barb is really all about the promotion. I'm on Facebook a lot. <laughs> she is. She has to be for the library. Mm-hmm. I have defended that a couple of times. Uh, Joe. Oh. <laughs> Always telling you to get off Facebook. I'm professionally required to be on Facebook. I can't help. I, I, we have the old-timey, crimey Facebook. Explain to me how I'm supposed to post to the Facebook without being on Facebook. It's a necessary evil. It is. That's unfortunate, but it's true. And not so. like an anti-hero set an IOU for pie hero. They're just, yeah. they're just an evil.